Well, good morning and welcome on this um, spectacular weekend that we have been given and a uh, special welcome to all those joining us at Crossroads and Highland Park and the 01. Let me add my voice to those thanking all the servicemen, uh, men and women past and uh, present for your service to our country. We have our challenges, but uh, in my travels anyway, I've not found a better place to live than, uh, than the United States. So, we are uh, turning back to the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I I counted, uh, this is the 68th message in this series, we have 21 to go, Uh, so we're getting there. Uh, The topic today is success. Are you a success? What's your definition of success? Does your definition of success line up with God's definition of success? Are you a success by God's definition? How do you know? Those are the questions that, uh, that sort of bubble up from a very famous parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the talents, which is in Luke chapter 19. Now, just by way of overview, we're slightly out of order. Um, Anson has been taking a, one of his doctorate of ministry classes, and in particular on Zacchaeus, which is going to be, would have been the passage for today. It's going to be the passage next week. You don't want to miss next week because Anson... Um, is going to be preaching on that passage. So I am going to the passage right after that, a little bit out of order. So you just need to know a bit about Zacchaeus because Jesus is, is going to tell a parable in response to what has been happening. So he's, uh, again, he's been up in Galilee for most of his ministry. We have been tracking with him as he follows, as he makes this trek down to Jerusalem. He is timing his arrival into Jerusalem to coincide with the Passover, in particular with the moment that the Passover lamb would be brought into Jerusalem to be sacrificed, because that's what everything has been pointing for since page three of the Old Testament. Everything has been leading up to the the death, the crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the hinge point of history, so he's timing his arrival to arrive then. And he's been teaching along the way. Uh, he's getting close. We're within the, probably the week before the final week of Christ's life. And the crowds are getting a little bit excited. And the, the numbers are starting to, to spike a bit as they get closer to Jerusalem. Uh, at this particular moment, he is going to have an intersection with Zacchaeus, who is a tax collector. And the tax collectors are the scum of the earth. They're traitors. Remember, there's, a, there's franchises that the Romans uh, submit to a bid. And so the people who win the bids are basically saying, I can get more money out of my friends than anyone else, and I will give it to you, and then you get to keep whatever is left over. So you're sort of mafia thugs, you know, beating people up and getting all the money they can to give to Rome. Everybody hates them. The Romans don't like them because they're just, you know, they recognize that they're traitors, they're selling out, and they're not Romans. So the Romans don't hang out with them, and of course the Jews don't uh, look at them with any favor. They're, they're lower than, than anything, and Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's also quite famously, if you remember this song, uh, he's a wee little man. He's short in stature, and so uh, he runs ahead and uh, climbs a tree. Jesus is coming into town. He can't see him, so he runs ahead. He climbs this sycamore tree, and while Jesus is walking by, he says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree because I'm going to your house today. Scandal, 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 very much like Jesus. He's going to go to the house of the one that everybody despises. But in that interaction, 
Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give half of my money away. I'm going to, if I've taken money illegally from somebody, I'm going to give them four times what I took. And Jesus then famously says, salvation has come to this house today. Which the people hear and they go, oh my goodness, if salvation is coming to Zacchaeus, who is lower than Ponscom, if, Z- if Zacchaeus is going to work well for him, then it's obviously going to be great news for all of us. Jesus is going to announce he's the Messiah. He's going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to be back on the top of the food chain. Everything is trending well. So there's this, there's this euphoria that is happening at this particular moment. And so in light of that, we get this set up. It says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was nearing Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So it's because everybody's all excited and they think, this is it, this is it, finally, at last, the day we've been waiting for is about to happen, that Jesus tells them this particular parable. Now, it's a little bit different what they were looking forward to and what we look forward to as Christ followers, uh, the return of Christ. But there is a similarity here in that... um, They were looking forward to something that was not about to happen. And uh, at some point, those who are certain that Jesus is going to appear soon will be right. Because history is not going nowhere. History is not circular. We are headed towards the culmination. There There is a purpose. It's not random. It's not left to chance. History is marching towards uh, the the ultimate return and coronation of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But uh, for 2,000 years, people have been persuaded that it was going to happen in their lifetime. It's going to happen soon, right? I get asked with some frequency, don't you think we're living in the last times? Don't you think Jesus is going to return soon? And uh, I I say, well, you know, what I'm aware of is that for 2,000 years, people have been convinced that Jesus was going to return soon. So, uh, and I'm also aware that when I go and read about the return of Christ, and when I go and study the kingdom of God and the, and the talk about that and how that's going to unfold, I come away very confused because Jesus says things like the kingdom is near, but it's far. And it's here, but it's not here. And uh, you can't tell when it's going to come, but here's the signs when it's going to come. You know, and you're just like, how do I put all these things together? So what I know from study of the Bible and study of, of uh, church history is that uh, there's always been this belief that it's, it's about to happen. So Paul writes in his first letter to the church in Thessal- Thessalonica and talks about the return of Christ. And so then in the second letter, he writes and he says, by the way, uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. Because all these people had just decided, well, I'm just, I'm just going to wait. Jesus is going to return soon. I'm just going to wait. And I'll be spiritual and I won't do anything except pray and let other people take care of me. And so he goes, no, it's not going to work that way. And then uh, when Rome was falling, uh, you know, 403, uh, the, the Vandals, the Goths, the Visigoths, the, all the, the, the Huns, all the barbarians are storming Rome, the eternal city, and Rome is falling. Everybody's convinced, this is it. It's, it's the end. Jesus is going to return. And then, uh, then you've got uh, Augustine makes this announcement that, uh, uh, that Jesus would return in 1000 A.D. And for the next, you know, 500 years, 
to believe otherwise was to be a heretic. And then there's a, there, there, the plague goes through Europe and, and a third of the people die. And everybody's convinced, this is it, Jesus is going to return. And then you got this uh, Benedictine monk uh, who announces that Jesus is going to return at 1260. He's got this formula that's based on uh, the, the Trinity and how it's all going to work out, right? And to believe otherwise was to be, was to be considered a fool. And then there are the reformers. You've got reformers saying that uh, we, I, I've worked it out and, and, and the Muslim Turks are the biblical Gog and Magog and they're going to storm here in 1533 and I'll be arrested and then Jesus is going to return. And um, he was arrested, but uh, Jesus didn't return. Martin Luther, who wisely said, you cannot tell the day. Uh, We cannot know the day of Jesus' return any more than an infant in its mother's womb knows the day it's going to be born. We just, (laughs) we're just not going to figure this out. Uh, Nevertheless, Martin Luther said, there's not time to do missions. We cannot send out missionaries because Jesus is going to return too soon. So you just, you go down the list and you just see this over and over. Hitler's the Antichrist, Mussolini's the Antichrist, you know, Gorbachev's the Antichrist, Kissinger, the, I, you just, it just, it never ends. The planets are going to line up. There's more vultures in the, in the fields of Armageddon. All this stuff is just sort of crazy talk that goes on out there and consistently, uh, we see time marching on. I had a friend, uh, sort of a mentor, who, who funded the college ministry uh, in a big way. He was a big supporter for the college ministry that I started out in. And he was in his 70s, and uh, he had not gone to college because he had been persuaded by his pastor that there wasn't time. And uh, he, was, he was frustrated by that and, and hurt by that, that he had been misled in that way. And so he says, I, I want to be involved in college ministry. I want these students to go to school, but I want them to hear about Jesus and to figure out how to invest their life. So, so at some point, someone's going to be right when they think that, that it's, uh, you know, it's winding down uh, because it will. Jesus will return. We can be confident that the one who came as a baby is going to come again as a king. But we don't know when. And this parable is given in particular to those who are convinced it's about to happen. What we've been waiting for is about to happen. And in light of that, Jesus says, because uh, they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, because of that, he teaches them this parable. So, uh, I'm reading now Luke chapter 19. This is the parable. Jesus is speaking. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So Jesus is talking about himself here. He is the one who is going to be appointed king and return. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is, he is uh, we'll say, 14, 15 days away from his crucifixion and resurrection. So after the resurrection, Jesus will walk among us for 40 days. He's going to teach the disciples, help everything sort of come together. And then he is going to ascend into heaven. So he is going to leave and go to heaven where he will eventually be appointed king and then he will return. Okay. So Jesus is talking about himself. However... He is also deliberately getting their attention because they are used to this, this whole metaphor. This, this, they're used to this idea that someone is going to leave, go to Rome and be appointed king and come back. And they also know that it doesn't always work out the way people think it's going to work out. So in 40 B.C., 
Herod had left, um, had left Israel and had gone to Rome and had been appointed by Caesar the king of the Jews. So this is Herod who becomes Herod the Great. And he's called Herod the Great because he's a great builder. He builds the temple. He builds, he builds, he's amazing in what he builds. He's a, he's a complete uh, sociopath. He has all his kids killed because he's worried they're trying to rival his power. Uh, when they get older, but he has lots of kids by lots of different women, and he names them all Herod, boys and girls. Everybody's Herod. If if he's the dad, they're Herod. And so it's confusing to try and keep the Herods apart, uh, but there is one of these Herods who, after Herod the Great dies, uh, goes to Rome to be appointed king by Caesar. This is in 4 B.C., Okay, and um, but while he's going there, verse fourteen, uh, it says that the that the Jews went. We don't want, and said to Caesar, we don't want this man to be our king. Okay, they 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 said anybody but this Herod. We do not. This Herod is a bad guy. We do not want him to be king. So what happens in four BC is that Caesar says, I'm going to give this Herod. Uh, Herod Archelaus, I'm going to give him a quarter of his father's kingdom. So we call him Herod the Tetrarch because he gets a fourth of what Herod the Great had. And he's so mad that, that he's been undermined by, like this, that when he comes back into um, to Israel, to Jerusalem, uh, he kills 3,000 people. He kills the people lined up against him. So, uh, so I'll just pause for a moment and say, some of you are frustrated by your current political options. Uh, it could be worse. Um, if you vote, voted wrong back then, if you backed the wrong candidate, you could be killed. Uh, so it was a little confusing. So when these people hear this, and remember, the first goal of Bible study is always to figure out what the original audience would have understood. We want to understand what the original listeners would have understood by this passage. And so when they hear this, when Jesus says a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return, they're thinking Herod and Herod the Great. Herod the Great and this other one. And and sometimes they go away and get appointed king and sometimes it doesn't work out so well. But he's also referring to himself, which later on would have made sense to them. Um, so, a guy leaves, goes on a trip, expects to be made king and return. Verse 13. So, uh, he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And then we've got this, Jesus telling the story, says, uh, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Very much like what had happened, again, to Herod uh, the, the Tetrarch. Now, Matthew also tells this parable. We're in Luke 19. Matthew 25 has a, has a similar parable. That's called parable of the talents. Uh, Matthew uses a different word. Here he uses the word minus. Luke uses a different word. He uses the word minus. So there's, there's some confusion as to how much money uh, this, this master is handing out to people. And it's confusing in part because what it generally means is they get about a three-month's supply of money. So when you look at the historical record, uh, it's all over the board because people make different amounts of money. But basically, 
it's not an insignificant amount that they're being given, especially if they're a servant. They probably are not used to having three to four months of wages at one time. Um, something else that's important to note here. Uh, it says, put this money to work. The, guy, the master gives, gives out this money. Put this money to work, he said. And the NIV says, until I come back. Now, uh, I have been persuaded recently that, that, that's a, that that's not the best translation of the Greek in that particular spot. So I, I've referenced this guy, Ken Bailey, uh, a few times. Ken Bailey is an American uh, Bible scholar, PhD in the Gospels. His focus was the parables. He went to the Middle East and, and worked there as a missionary for 40 years, teaching the parables among people living in the Middle East. He returned about seven or eight years ago. I uh, just died this week, but he returned about seven or eight years ago, and he did a lot of writing uh, saying, look, after 40 years of living in the Middle East, teaching the parables in all these Jewish and, and Arab communities, I understand some of these parables differently in light of Middle Eastern culture. And one of the things that he said is, all the, all the Arab and Jewish translations of this passage translate this little old Greek phrase, enho, they translate it not um, until I return, they translate it because I will return. Which is not going to change the meaning of this parable, but it changes the context just a little bit. So what, what uh, Bailey says is, what you have to imagine is sort of like if the Shah of Iran in the 70s, just before he's deposed by Khomeini in the Islamic Revolution, had called together some of, his, uh, some of his servants and said, look, I'm leaving now, I'm going to go away, but I'll be back and I'll be back as the Shah, as the king. And I'm giving you this money now to invest, and he's not saying to invest until I return, he's saying to invest because I will return, Right? So there's a little bit of a loyalty test going on here, right? So, so there's going to be an Islamic uh, effort to, to push me out. Are you going to identify with me and open a business in light of me? Or are you going to go silent? So I, I think Bailey persuaded me that, um, that I think that this word is probably, I'm giving you this money to invest because I'm coming back. Verse 15, uh, he was made king, however, so the however is because people went there to try and stop him from being made king, but he was made king and returned home. Then he sent uh, for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and he said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Okay, so he was given one. Matthew's parable uh, there's, there's, five, there's somebody that gets five talents, somebody that gets two talents, and somebody gets one talent. Luke, everybody got one talent. So this guy comes in and says, uh, I took the one and I turned it into ten. Now, this is, you know, capitalism at its finest here. Um, well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy with a small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, sir... Your mind has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mind. I have kept it laid in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take what you did not uh, put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, 
I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? So think about what Jesus is saying here to this person and ultimately, of course, to us. It is a uh, go make something happen with your life. So the premise of all of Scripture is that we are stewards. God is the owner. God created everything everywhere, and he retains all rights. Everything on the asset side of your balance sheet is his. It's just temporarily on loan. We are stewards of his gifts. I'll quote again Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch uh, theologian and politician. Kuyper started the Free University of Amsterdam, started the newspaper. He was the editor of that. He, he started a political party and then became prime minister. He did pretty much everything. He's a great reformed theologian. One of his famous quotes is, there isn't a single square inch anywhere in the universe that Jesus doesn't say, mine. Right? It's mine. And He retains all rights. He created it. He spoke it into existence. It's always his. We are managers, not owners. And we are expected to invest the gifts, the abilities, the time, the talent, the the money, the, 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 the resources, the opportunities that we have. We are to invest those in ways that reflect the values and the vision of the owner. And so... God is saying here, Jesus is saying here, do something with what I'm giving you. Now, there's, there's a bunch of parables. If you look at them, they fall roughly 50-50. Okay? So 50% of the parables are about grace. They're, they're scandalous because they set up these scenarios in which the last thing you would expect is for somebody to be forgiven. <laughs> For somebody to be given a break, for somebody to, somebody to come out on top, for somebody to, 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 to be given a gracious response. The other half of the parables are, are sort of something that you would read in Inc. Magazine or Forbes or Fast Company. It's sort of like, get out there and do something with what you've been given. Go make it happen. So some people really love these parables. They don't like these. Some people really like these parables. They're not so thrilled about these. They're both in there, right? And, and they're both true. And they're, they're true in sometimes confusing ways. But this is one of those parables that says, go make something happen. You have been entrusted with gifts, abilities, resources, talent, opportunities, and network. Go do something kingdom-minded with what you are being given. There is an expectation of a return on investment. Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, this is the owner, uh, the master. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina, pointing to the one who had one and had buried it. Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, this one already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And then he adds, verse 27, 
But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So, sort of what Herod the Tetrarch had done. Unexpected, but we clearly get this, uh, we clearly come away with this understanding that uh, Jesus is serious when he says, go make something happen with what I have given to you. So, uh, I think this, this passage, again, in light of the context in which it, it's been given, calls on us, however long we think we have. If you're in the camp that says, this is it, we're in the end days, okay? Or if you're in the camp that says, no, could be another hundred years, thousand years, whatever. It doesn't matter. We are to be people who are making kingdom investments because the king is going to return. And I, I think that should be part of what helps us figure out how to chart a path going forward. There's, there's sort of three camps emerging right now in the, in the broader Christian community as it relates to how to interact with, with the world. Uh, one camp says, look, we, we're going we're gonna to fight for power, the culture wars camp. We're going to fight for power. We're going to try and elect our candidates. We're going to pass our laws. We, we want people to, we're going to do whatever we can. I think it's a losing hand. I think it's always been a bad hand, but that, there's the culture war strategy. There's another group on the other side that says, uh, we think the Benedictine monks had the right example. So when, when Rome was falling, uh, when things looked bad, Europe is about to plunge into the dark ages, uh, again, the, the, the collapse of Rome, uh, early 5th century, when that's about to happen, uh, there were a bunch of monks that sort of left Rome and they went out into the countryside and they created these Benedictine communities. This is how the Irish saved civilization, right? They created these pockets of health and, and, and then when Rome fell, lots of people would go there and gee, there was, there was love, there was grace, there was trust, there was community, there was trade. These things were happening there that weren't happening in Rome. So there's some people that say, you know, we just have to retreat. It's too bad. Well, I, I don't, I don't think that's an option. Uh, I don't think this parable makes that an option, right? Because he's returning. I think we have to figure out how to be salt and light in the middle of what's going on and continue to love and serve. And, and it's difficult, it's challenging to always know what to do. But I think that is what we get called to, a long-term vision that says he's, he's going to return. In light of that, I need to be working on kingdom-minded efforts right now. So... I would say there are at least five sort of high-level points here that should be coming out of this parable. The first one is we're just reminded that God owns everything, everywhere. We're stewards, not owners. We're, we're expected to invest his resources in ways that reflect his values. It's also worth noting that we're not all equal. Uh, this is not a politically correct statement, but we're not all the same. We all have infinite value because we've been made in the image of God. And we could talk philosophically about having ontological equality in, in front of God. But, and I think Matthew's version of this parable does it a little bit better for us. There are five talent people and there are two talent people and there are one talent people and we have different gifts and abilities. And it's okay 
Because God is going to work this out when it comes time for the audit. There is an audit. We are accountable for what we do with what we've been given. If we've been given a lot, then more is expected of us. So the, 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 the servants in this parable all hear the same thing. Uh, the, the first two, they hear the same thing in both Matthew and Luke. They, they are celebrated for their faithfulness, not their success. They're celebrated for their faithfulness, and they're told that they can enter into the joy of their master. God can work out how this goes, but there's a lot of four and five and seven and eight talent people in this congregation. And I just would say, again, the two things I keep saying to people who are four and five and six and seven and eight talent people, nine talent people, we we need to remember there's a difference between being born on third base and hitting a triple, right? Many of us have been born on third base. (laughs) We've been given every advantage, every advantage out there. And if you're born on third base, then you ought to treat third base a little differently than if you hit the triple. Additionally, I would say those two, much has been given, much is expected. Right? That's, if, if you're an eight or nine talent person, then eight or nine talent returns is what God is expecting. So, we're stewards, we're not all equal. God will work this out in the end. Everybody, by the way, has been given something. And uh, we, we uh, have a call to be accountable, to, to do something with what has been entrusted to us, to uh, take some risks, right? It's the one who didn't take any risk that really gets in trouble in this parable. So I want to encourage you to take some kingdom risks. And I'm going to close with the story. Two years ago, about now, I was... Um, at RIC. So, you know, the, the, the brain injury back in, uh, on Good Friday two years ago, a couple weeks in the hospital, and then I go to the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. And I'm there for three weeks, and when you check in there, they give you an assessment. So at my assessment, um, I could stand for seven seconds without falling over. And, and that's not like this. That's like this. I could, I could go seven seconds without, they, didn't, they, they don't let you fall over, but it's just obvious you're falling. And they would ask things like, when I'm standing like this, they'd say, okay, Mike, lift, lift one of your legs. And you're like, there isn't any lifting one of my legs, right? That isn't going to happen. So I go through this assessment, and, uh, and the guy says, okay, so Mike, you need to understand you're, you're at risk for falling. I go, oh, really? <laughs> you had to do that assessment to figure that out. <laughs> okay. He said, well, there's, there's, so you're whatever I was. I was level one. He said, so that means here's the protocol. You cannot, uh, you cannot do these things on your own. You have to always be in a wheelchair. You have to have a seatbelt on, da, da, da. So, you know, at that point, it was basically I am, I am locked down. And there were all these 23-year-olds named Tiffany and Amber who would always scold me if I, if I didn't have my seatbelt on or if I wasn't doing something like, you know, Mr. Woodruff, you have to stay there. Do not do that. Do not try and get out of it. Do not try and, you know, get yourself out of that wheelchair and into bed. You know, you have to have people here to help you do all that. So this goes on for, whatever, a week, two weeks. 
And, and then one Saturday, I have a different physical therapist who I only saw one time. And it was, a, it was a guy, young guy, late 20s, early 30s. And uh, he takes me back. It's Saturday, so there's not as much activity. And as opposed to being in the center of where almost all the activity happened, in the center of the floor, he takes me down this hallway. And uh, he sets up these cones. And I've done this, you know, at this point 50 times. There's little cones, and I've got to walk around the cones. Although I've got a safety belt on, and they're holding me up, and we were walking around the cones. So he sets up the cones, and he's sort of leaning against the wall, and I'm in the wheelchair. Uh, he's over there. I'm sitting in the wheelchair, and he, he's set up the cones, and he goes, okay, try the course. And I'm sitting in the chair, and I look at him, and I go, well, I need help. He says, I don't think you need help. I said, well, I'm, I'm at risk for falling. I said, if, if, I, if I fall, you'll get in trouble. And he said, uh, Mr. Woodruff, he says, I just came back on Tuesday from my second tour of Afghanistan. He says, do we want to talk about risk? And I looked at him, and, and then he said, uh, Mr. Woodruff, get your blank out of that blank chair and walk. <laughs> and I was like, Okay, and it was not pretty. I did it. I got up and I, you know, stumbled over and crashed into the wall and held onto the rail there. And then I sort of navigated to the other side of the hall and I grabbed onto the rail there and I'm, you know, making my way through these things. And I went back to my room afterwards and I, I, uh, I wrote down some things about risk. And I, I remember saying, when, when did I become the guy that was going to sit in the chair? When did I become the guy that was going to let, you know, a 22-year-old tell me I, I can't do something? And I was just going to accept that. And I was just going to sit there. And, and I was reflecting on the fact that if you don't risk, nothing happens. And so I want to say to you, run some risks. Take some chances. Live dangerously for the kingdom of God. Life is short, eternity is not. We need to invest the gifts and abilities, the time, the talent, the resources that we've been given in something that's going to outlast it because he will return. And the worst thing you can do is just to be sitting on the gifts and assets that he's been giving you, not investing them in his kingdom. So run some risks and take some chances and live dangerously for the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we thank you for the wisdom that we find uh, on the pages of the Bible, the stories that Jesus told, the parables, brilliantly insightful into our condition. Father, we confess that we uh, are very content to play it safe and to use the gifts and assets that you've given us for uh, lives of comfort and ease as opposed to understanding that we are stewards of your resources and that you're going to return and we want to be found faithful. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servants. So guide us to that end as individuals and as, as a church. Guide us 
that we would be found faithful, that we would take the risks that build the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.